Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 54 of Unknown Orbits, Mars is Heaven by Ray Bradbury. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. This is a story that wound up in the book The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. That was a fix-up novel taking some of his stories from the 1940s and, I believe, early 50s that were set on the planet Mars and loosely gathered together into a narrative about the human conquest of Mars. In this particular story, Earth astronauts land on Mars and, to their surprise, find a quaint Norman Rockwell American town. They are the second expedition because the first one disappeared mysteriously? Yes, I believe that's the case. So when it became a fix-up novel, I think that's what they did, is they created this sort of a sequential history. You know, like the first expedition is the first story. It ends in tragedy, and they all die. Then they send another expedition, and that ends in a different kind of tragedy. And eventually they are able to overcome the resistance of the Martians, So this is, I believe, the second one. It's the second mission. They land on the planet Mars, and surprise, there's this town. Very much your turn of the 19th, 20th century type, nostalgic, all-American, Midwestern type town, complete with quaint houses and... Bandstands. Bandstands and general stores and all of that sort of thing. They immediately begin a discussion among themselves as to what this really is. Some of them think it was evidence of God, that God put this here to prove that he's God or to teach a lesson to humanity. Another astronaut puts forward that this is an example of parallel evolution, that an Earth-like society grew up on its own on a completely separate planet. Seems unlikely that Jules Verne was right about life being the same on all these different planets. Another one says, well, maybe this is uh, time travel. Maybe we've come into the future where it's been settled by humans. None of it really seems to make any sense. Nobody can really identify exactly why they're seeing this town on Mars. If I had a guess, he had them coming up with all these speculations in order to show that they wouldn't work. Right. So that we are not thinking of any of them. Right. So there's this chunk of the story where they're all arguing with one another about their different theories. And then one of them comes up with an argument why that wouldn't work, why it wouldn't be that way. So that's a chunk of the story here. But eventually, they begin to see familiar people, people that they knew in their life. And they see dead relatives. You know, one astronaut sees his grandmother and grandfather. Somebody else sees their parents who are dead. Everybody, all of these different astronauts, and they go into the homes, and they're the homes that they remember from childhood. These dead relatives recognize them and know information about them. Right, and it's very strange. The relatives are accepting the fact that they're seeing these long-lost relatives, and they're admitting, yeah, I know I'm dead, but who cares? You're here now. I'm here. This is all that matters. The crew begins to break apart because they fall under the spell of meeting their dead relatives, and that's very emotional, and it's soothing because they sit down and they have a 
turkey dinner with their relatives or, you know, they do things with them. It lulls them into a sense of safety. And you do have some tension for the captain who's insisting that they must stay with the ship. Right. But eventually even he gets lured into this. And I believe it ends with him sleeping in the house of his parents or grandparents or whoever it is. Yeah. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees them moving about stealthily. And he begins to suspect something bad is going on. And he's right because they kill him and they kill the rest of the crew. They bury them and then they destroy the spaceship. And it turns out that they were Martians, that they disguised themselves to lure the invading, from their perspective, the invading Earthmen into a position where they could get rid of them easily. And if it needs to be said, the Martians can read the Earthmen's minds, and that's how they were able to set up the illusion anyway. They read their minds and are able to present an illusion to them that feels real, and it leads to their, the end of their, their expedition. You know, it occurs to me that this plot sounds just a little bit familiar. Well, it does, and it's going to bring up one of our recurring themes. The fact that Rod Serling had a tendency to borrow ideas from people. I should give a little bit of background. We've talked about this before, about Rod Serling, when he created The Twilight Zone, one of the things that happened very early on while he was developing it was he met Ray Bradbury at a dinner party or something, and Ray Bradbury was very excited about the idea. And he said, well, here, here's a bunch of books that can help give you ideas for what this show could be like. And Rod Serling took that and ran with it and wound up kind of ripping off a bunch of different authors. And especially, and this is something Ray Bradbury himself believed, ripped off Ray Bradbury regularly. If you think about The Twilight Zone and you think about the way the style that Ray Bradbury wrote, that very nostalgic sort of fondness for the past, yeah, very emotional, poetic sort of themes that he had in all of his writing, including the Martian Chronicles for sure, they reappear in the Twilight Zone regularly. He actually worked with Serling to write some episodes, and he only was able to get one produced, which was I Sing the Body Electric. That was the only one that he actually got adapted and he kind of left the show frustrated by the fact that he wasn't able to do what he thought he should be able to do on a TV show. But there is clear, clear, clear evidence that a lot of stuff that appeared in The Twilight Zone, in terms of tone at a minimum, was ripped off from Ray Bradbury. And there were some story ideas, including one episode called Elegy, where a group of astronauts, now tell me this doesn't sound familiar, what we just said, a group of astronauts lands on an asteroid and finds this turn-of-the-century, quaint, Midwestern, Norman Rockwell sort of a town, complete with bandshell and general store and, and everything. And everybody in the town is frozen in place. So it's like all these villagers are scattered throughout the town, and they're all just frozen in place. Like the whole town just froze at a moment in time. In their bandstands and parades and right. general stores. Right. And it turns out that it's a graveyard. When they die, they are allowed to have their bodies put into this town in this beautiful bucolic setting. It's very similar to the story that we're talking about by Ray Bradbury tonight. And at the end, the astronauts are all killed just like it was in our story, and become a part of the landscape. Plagiarism is too strong of a word, perhaps, but borrowing certainly fits the case with, with Rod Serling. 
you could write a book about this. It's such a rich topic. And just to give you another example that I just ran across a few weeks ago, the iconic ending of the movie Planet of the Apes with the Statue of Liberty half buried in the ground after an atomic war, he wrote the script for that movie. And there are people that have found covers of science fiction magazines prior to 1968 when the Planet of the Apes movie came out, featuring that exact same iconic image. Just going off memory, I believe it would have been Other Worlds. I could see the picture in my head. One for sure, and I think there were more than one. So somebody came up with the original idea, and even that was probably appropriated by another cover artist at some point. So there's multiple examples out there of this image, and it shows up, and it's the key image for the Planet of the Apes. What made that movie a sensation was the twist ending with that image. So again, borrowed. Plagiarized? Yeah, that one is probably plagiarized. But there's just this pattern with Rod Serling that, I'm sorry, it's just there's so many examples of it. But what is he plagiarizing? An image? Yeah, or a concept. Astronauts land on a planet and it's a turn-of-the-century American Midwestern town. I mean, that's fairly specific. The Statue of Liberty half-buried after Apocalypse, that's pretty specific. See, I keep coming back to the idea of Serling not as a writer, but as a producer. And you could see a producer saying, whatever it takes to get this episode out the door. Yeah. Do a little bit here, a little bit there, props from Lost in Space, it doesn't matter, just get it done. Yeah, and I, I don't want to go on a big rant against Rod Serling. I'm just pointing out that this is yet another example where he specifically borrowed stuff from Ray Bradbury. You think about it, if, if you listen to the description of the plot, you would have thought, gee, that sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. I did. There's a reason why it sounds like the plot of a Twilight Zone episode, because that whole format, that whole feel, that whole structure of a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes were taken from Ray Bradbury. Well, the feel of the whole series does have this sort of uncertain place in the universe feel that Bradbury's writing has. Yeah, yeah. He was very good at that particular wrinkle on science fiction. So I just wanted to point out a couple of little factoids. This was originally published in Planet Stories in 1948. Those of you who are not familiar with science fiction magazines back in the day, Planet Stories started in the 1930s and was always the most space opera, cheesy dude with a ray gun rescuing a scantily clad woman with brass brassiers fighting off a tentacled monster. That was planet stories. That's the sort of story that they absolutely specialized in. Oh, I believe this magazine has come up in the podcast before. I'm sure it has. There's that old phrase, bug-eyed monsters. Right. And Planet Stories was successful. They were a popular magazine going well into the 1950s. And that's where one of the magazines where Ray Bradbury kind of got a start. So before he wound up in the Saturday Evening Post and other more prestigious outlets in the 1940s, Planet Stories was one of those magazines that he had a lot of stuff published in. And here's our Wisconsin connection. One of the astronauts says in the story, well, this looks exactly like Green Lake, Wisconsin. I'm assuming Green Lake doesn't exist, but oh, it does. Wisconsin, no, it, does. it does. I have spent quite a bit of time in Green Lake, Wisconsin. Green Lake, Wisconsin is west of Milwaukee. It's a tourist town. It originally 
back in the earlier days was one of the top tourist destinations for people from Illinois, along with Lake Geneva. So those two towns were pretty much catering to Illinois tourists for many, many decades. It's no longer quite as much of a magnet as it used to be. It's still a very lovely little town with a lot of very nice vacation homes on the lake. So I just wanted to point that out. And Bradbury was from Waukegan, Illinois. So he may have spent some time in Green Lake, Wisconsin when he was a child or a teenager. That's entirely possible. So this story was adapted a number of different times. A radio adaptation, Dimension X. X minus one, I think was a TV show. It was a radio show. I forget which is which, but one of them was basically the outlet for Galaxy and the other for Astounding. Oh, okay. Um, it was also adapted as a EC comic from Weird Science, which is a terrific magazine back in the day, by Al Feldstein and Wally Wood. Wally Wood is one of my favorite comic book artists. He was the guy who was the absolute master of drawing cool, sleek spaceships and busty women in tight spacesuits. That was Wally Wood. I love his work. And then, of course, it was adapted as an episode in the 80s, I believe, the Ray Bradbury Theater. That was a short-lived TV show that adapted a bunch of Ray Bradbury stories. You know, I never saw it. How, how was it? It was okay. It was like your typical 80s TV show. It didn't really feature great actors necessarily. That's my memory of it. Production values were okay, not exceptional. So this was probably in the era of the new Twilight Zone and Amazing Stories and the new Outer Limits all in the 80s. Yeah, and it probably wasn't as, it certainly wasn't as good as Amazing Stories, which had a like a Hollywood level budget and had top directors involved in it. It was more like, remember that TV show Monsters? I have a vague memory that it was terrible. Well, yeah. You know what it was? I'm pretty sure it was one of those Canadian produced TV shows of the 80s that just had that certain slightly lower quality but not cheap feel to it that were made in Canada. But at any rate, it might be worth you and I looking at. It doesn't fit into the purview of the show, but it might be fun to check out a few of the better episodes. So why should anybody read this story? Well, it was included in the initial volume of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. I think the premise is pretty great, especially if you think of it as a Twilight Zone type episode, but it was written in 1948. Yeah. So that's significant that this set the tone for a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, but it was written a decade or so earlier. Personally, I don't think it's his best writing. It doesn't hold up to some of his better stuff that he wrote in the 1950s, but it's decent. You know, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it almost a consistent theme in Bradbury's writing that there's like this hidden reality behind what we see? That's often a theme of his, yeah, that like everyday life, there's something lurking behind it. That would be very much a horror writer idea. Well, he did start his career writing horror stories for weird tales, so he had that background. That's one reason why later on I think he was a fairly successful writer is he could drop in those horror elements when needed. We've already talked about one of my favorite stories, The Velt, which is a story about the children that have the reality machine where they can be in the African Velt and, and it goes horribly wrong at the end. 
Now, there's two stories, very similar, I get mixed up, and I don't know if Bradbury wrote both of them. The Velt is where the parents get killed. Right. They try to turn the machine off, and the machine turns itself back on, and the kids kill their parents. (laughs) It's pretty horrible. The other story, I remember, is absolutely identical, except they take the kids on a trip to the Grand Canyon, and one of the kids walks off the ledge because he believes he's going to the kitchen to get a soda. That one, I don't recognize. So it's probably not Bradbury. It may not be. I don't know, but it's possible. So since we're discussing The Martian Chronicles, which is one of the best books, I think, ever written in science fiction because of the breadth and quality of the stories included in it, even though it's a fix-up, it's held together with certain themes that I think are very good. I always thought there was a good level of realism. Yes, The first guys that got there weren't wildly successful. They failed, and then the second failed. Right. And then we meet Martians, and it doesn't go very well. Right. They have to literally conquer the Martians before they can settle the planet. That's part of the theme that reoccurs throughout all these different stories. So I thought we'd take an opportunity here to talk about Mars as a setting for science fiction. And obviously, there's been an enormous amount of stories and novels written about adventures or problems or whatever on the planet Mars. For several different reasons, I think. So let me just give a little bit of a background to the fictional use of the planet Mars. Originally, back in the mid-1800s, when writers were doing speculative fiction, and a lot of this was not really pure science fiction. It was like philosophical fiction set on other planets, And the one that was most commonly used was the moon. So they would write a story about somebody built a balloon and they traveled to the moon in a balloon and met ancient Greek people on the moon and had philosophical discussions, that kind of thing that is probably unreadable nowadays. Were they wearing togas? Yeah, I'm sure togas were involved. But somewhere in the mid-1800s, scientists had better telescopes And they were able to determine that it looked like the moon had no atmosphere and it was probably uninhabitable. Then the focus for these sort of stories shifted from the moon to Mars. I'd like to interject a little bit of history in here. I find this fascinating. Among the very many strange Victorian beliefs was the idea that the sun every few million years would spit out a planet and it would slowly work its way further and further away from the sun. This would result in the oldest planets were the furthest away, and the youngest were the nearest. So that's where you get Mars as an old, dying planet, and Venus as a brand-new jungle planet. Yep, that was a part of the mythology that you had at the time in all of these fictional accounts going up to the days of Edgar Rice Burroughs. So... More and more stories were written about Mars. Then you had Percival Lowell, who discovered, quote-unquote, canals on Mars at one point in the late 1800s. Which, by the way, remember, that's a mistranslation of an Italian word. Yes. It's a fascinating story in and of itself, which we're not going to get into today, of how the whole idea of canals on Mars developed. But obviously the writers took that and ran with it as proof or evidence that there was once or is a civilization of intelligent beings on Mars that could construct canals on a desert-like planet that had scarce water and you needed the canals to move the water around. So that brings us up 
to the Edgar Rice Burroughs era, where you had all of those wonderful Mars books. You had some other authors like the Gulliver of Mars series that copied Edgar Rice Burroughs, where he's having adventures across this desert landscape with these strange alien beings and fighting giant four-armed monsters. Do you know about that series? Is that the same Gulliver as Gulliver's Travels? No, it is not. It's a Gulliver of Mars. I forget the name of the author, but it was pretty much a ripoff of Edgar Rice Burroughs. But they were very popular, as were the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. So that held, that vision of Mars as an ancient planet with either a dead civilization or ancient beings living on it, that held firm throughout the first half of the 20th century. I don't know exactly when that began to fade away. I have a famous novel, Red Planet by Heinlein. Oh, yes. In 1949, he still had canals on Mars in that book. I think one of the later stories, a few years later, that was starting to move in the right direction was Sands of Mars by Arthur C. Clarke. He did not include canals in that story. Oh, you'd have to remind me of that one. I must have read it, though. I have not read it. This is one of the examples I found when I was trying to find a point where the shift began away from the old view of Mars. So in this book, Sands of Mars, Clarke has primitive vegetation growing on the planet that's giving off oxygen. And there were telescopic explorations of the surface that had these dark spots that moved across the surface. And one of the original theories was it was this vegetation that was moving seasonally. So Clark adopted that idea. Obviously, that turned out not to be the case. It was just shifting sands, that sort of thing. And there were primitive natives on Mars that were tending and eating the vegetation and living off the oxygen of it. That was beginning of a shift. And then again, in the 1960s, you had the Mariner probe and one of the other probes that I don't remember that actually mapped the surface of Mars and destroyed forever the idea of canals and also destroyed the idea of moving patches of vegetation. So from the 1960s onward, you had a much more realistic depiction of Mars. Now, one of the things I found in doing research for this was fascinating is a tiny subgenre of science fiction called Robinsonades. Wait a minute. Have you mentioned this word before? Wait a minute. Is this Robinson Crusoe on Mars? Well, we're getting to that. Okay. Robinson Aids were a select number of stories, mostly published in the 1950s, that featured astronauts stranded on Mars, as in Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Marooned on Mars by Lester Del Rey is an example of one of these stories. But there was another one called No Man Friday by Rex Gordon, which was kind of plagiarized by Robinson Crusoe on Mars, the movie that came out in the early 1960s. There was also another one that I found, The Man Who Lost the Sea by Theodore Sturgeon. Basically, these were kind of your problem-solving stories where an astronaut gets stranded on Mars, cut off from Earth, and they have to survive somehow and find a way to keep alive until they can be rescued. It's a little bit like uh, Martian Odyssey by Weinbaum. Well, yes, and I'm sorry that I forgot to mention that one when we were talking about the earlier days of science fiction, but yes, that's a pivotal depiction of the planet Mars. And if this sounds familiar to you, the idea that someone is marooned on the planet Mars and they have to solve all kinds of problems to keep themselves alive, to keep themselves fed, to have oxygen, to not freeze to death, Um, well, that was the basis of a very recent bestseller called The Martian by Andy Weir. 
written in the style was called... Epistolary. Yes, that was it. This is an actual subgenre of science fiction, which I find fascinating. It's a rich idea for a good adventure story. It's a problem-solving story, but if you throw in maybe some hostile aliens, like you did on Robinson Crusoe on Mars, where this race of aliens is enslaving people, and one of the slaves escapes, and he becomes the Man Friday for Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and... Although he wasn't named Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, yeah. I forget what his name was. Captain something. You know who the actor was? No. He's a recognizable actor of the day. But Adam West was in that movie. That's who I was thinking of. Adam West was the captain of the ship, died in the crash when they crashed on Mars, and then the main character kept seeing his ghost every now and then because he was going a little crazy from oxygen deprivation. Okay. So that's a fascinating subgenre that, as Andy Weir can attest, is still a powerful premise up to this day. I can appreciate the setting as one that brings up some fun problem solving, but I am shocked that such a narrow genre could exist. Well, it was probably one of those things where maybe Lester Del Rey's story was popular and several other authors seized on the basic premise and did their own version of it because it is a great premise. It's the man stranded away from civilization, going all the way back to the original Daniel Defoe, Robinson Crusoe story. So obviously that's a proven template for a good story going back a long time. There were other types of stories being written in the 1950s on Mars. A lot of them were colonization of Mars, like the challenge. Again, kind of a problem-solving approach where they're terraforming Mars, all of the challenges of that planet and how they overcame them. So it became a little bit less romantic, the Edgar Rice Burroughs version of Mars. You had fewer and fewer stories that featured Martians in them, maybe, and more hard science fiction that was more oriented towards the idea of how do human beings survive on Mars. Right. And then, of course, in the 1960s, these spacecraft put an end once and for all to all of these fantasies, all of this romantic vision of Mars as an ancient civilization, put an end to it once and for all. And from that point forward, it became strictly hard science fiction. Well, it's a little hard to hang a plot on a seasonal change in the levels of methane around the equator. Yeah, it's not as exciting as riding around on eight-legged horses and having sword fights and rescuing princesses. But I will say that probably towards the end, as we mentioned before, the magazine Planet Stories, they probably held on as long as anybody to the idea of Martians and canals, ancient civilizations. That magazine, until it folded, probably was still writing those kinds of Mars stories. I think they did trail off a little bit, but finally ended around 1960. Yeah. We talked in another episode about how there was a winnowing of the science fiction magazines in the late 50s due to a distribution problem that afflicted all magazines. And some of the ones that were just hanging on by their fingernails faded away around that time. And I think Planet Story was one of them. Yeah. The space program was taken off, it was becoming a reality, and it was much more nuts and bolts, and there just wasn't the market for that kind of romantic interplanetary space opera. They always had the greatest cover art. Oh, absolutely. If you want a collection of, like I said, women in golden brassieres being rescued by stalwart men with ray guns and bug-eyed monsters, Planet Stories is place to go. So do you have any other thoughts about Mars as a setting? Is anything else that springs to mind? Any stories that you can think of that had an impact for you set on the planet Mars? Not as such. I mean, the ones you've mentioned already, some of them I have, and they're on my reading list, like Marooned on Mars, and I think Red Planet are 
in my bookcase. The one story that keeps coming to mind is perhaps the worst Mars story. I forget the author. The plot of the story is that Mars captured a super dense rock. Mm -hmm. It's got like the mass of a moon, but it's the size of a golf ball. Mm -hmm. And it orbits like one foot off the ground. (laughs) One foot off the ground? It's kind of a fun story. It doesn't sound very scientific. It it, it is not, but it is kind of fun. Wouldn't it have the gravitational force of the moon? I don't know. Yes, and there is such a thing as friction which would eventually overcome it and make it well, with crash. A, with a low-density atmosphere like Mars, yeah, but if they were going to be scientifically accurate. Uh, that author, whoever he was, maybe I have some ill feelings towards that story because of the ending. I think we've talked before that a short story will very often have an ending, and then after that, a final note, just kind of a rhythm thing to end it. So in this story, they... The ending of the story is that they discovered this amazing astronomical object, and the final note is that the captain decides to name it because we have Deimos and, and, Phobos. and Phobos. He wants to call this new moon Bottomos. <laughs> what? Terrible pun. Oh, my God. I'd be mad about that, too. <laughs> yeah. On that note, that's it for episode 54. Please make sure to follow us on your favorite podcasting outlet. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like. Tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.